Let's read the Word of God this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. This chapter is very familiar to our young adults because we studied this in our Bible study last season. We're going to read the whole chapter together this morning in connection with Lord's Day 32. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others, which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We read the word of God that far this morning. I call your attention to Lord's Day 32 in the back of the Psalter on page 19. You'll notice that we are now beginning the third part of the catechism, the third and final part, which treats the Christian life of thankfulness. Since then, we are delivered from our misery merely of grace, through Christ, without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? 
Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. That so we may testify by the whole of our conduct, our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us. Also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved, who continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Since then, we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Those are the words that begin this Lord's Day. And those opening words are really a summary of what the Catechism has taught us in the first two parts, namely the doctrine of our sin and misery and the doctrine of our complete salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul also speaks of that salvation in this epistle to the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle writes that we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. In chapter 2, the apostle speaks of the fact that he had preached the gospel of God to the Thessalonians. Beloved, I have also preached the gospel of God to you in this pulpit. The gospel of God, that God justifies us freely. That God justifies us by faith alone. That God justifies us only for the sake of the obedience and righteousness of Jesus Christ, and not by anything that we have done or because of anything that we have done, but totally apart from our help, our aid, our assistance, or our contribution, God has done everything to save us from our sins and our guilt and our misery. God gave us his only begotten Son to die on the cross, God loved us that much that he gave his only son to die on the cross so that through his death and his obedience, God would impute to us his righteousness and we would receive it by faith alone. And God now promises us, as we saw in the chapter that we read, that we don't have to be afraid when we die because those who die in Christ shall rise first on the great day of the resurrection. God has done everything for us, for our salvation, from beginning to end. Now, if that is true, the Catechism asks, and it is true, why then must we still do good works? Notice that the Catechism proceeds from the conviction that we must indeed still do good works. We who are redeemed, 
we who are justified, we who are saved, we who are promised everlasting life, must still do good works. The Catechism doesn't even enter into that question. The Catechism proceeds from the conviction. We must do good works. Over against the antinomian, who denies that the redeemed must do good works. The antinomian thinking is that you can't tell me that I must do good works. The Catechism assumes that we must And that assumption of the catechism is entirely based on Scripture. In Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said to those who followed him then and to us today, Ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You must do good works. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18 to Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Paul says to Timothy, tell the rich that they must do good works. Paul wrote to Titus, Titus 3 verse 8, This is a faithful saying, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Paul writes to Titus, Make sure that you teach those who believe you must be careful to maintain good works. And the apostle writes to the Thessalonians in the chapter that we read, We beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Notice the apostle not only indicates we must, you ought to do good works, but he also indicates we must abound more and more in good works. Later in the chapter that we read, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. The antinomian, when he takes his doctrine to an extreme, not only says, we don't have to do good works, but he goes on to eventually say, and God has actually called us to uncleanness, sin that grace may abound. Paul says, God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And then he goes on and says, we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. We must do good works according to Scripture, even as those who are redeemed apart from works. But why? That's the question. We're going to look into that question this morning, the necessity of good works for the redeemed. Notice, first of all, the renewing work of Christ. Secondly, the need to show our gratitude. Thirdly, the assurance of our faith. And finally, the gaining of others to Christ. Why must we still do good works? That's the question this morning. The answer to that question that the Catechism gives is, first of all, because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. That is the first answer to the question. 
why must we still do good works? And that answer teaches us the first meaning of the question. The first meaning of the question is, why is it that we Christians feel within our hearts that we must do good works? Why is it that we feel that in our hearts? Why is it that we feel this internal compulsion, this internal inclination, this internal resolution to do good works? What is the explanation of that? How can that be? If we go back to the beginning, we find our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, created in the image of God, created in righteousness and holiness. Adam and Eve had within their hearts the must of good works. They had not only in their hearts the desire to do good works and the ability to do good works, but they also had in their hearts the must of doing good works. They felt within themselves a compulsion, an inclination to do good works and only good works and to hate and avoid and flee from all evil works. They were created in the image of God. But when they fell into sin, Adam and Eve lost that internal necessity of good works, that internal inclination and commitment to doing good works. They lost it, and they began to feel in their hearts the very opposite, an irresistible inclination to do evil works, selfish works, wicked works, and nothing but evil. Is not that also how we have been conceived and born into this world? Have we not also been conceived and born with the internal inclination to do evil works? Is that not what comes naturally to us as human beings? Are we not born dead in sin, prone to all evil? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And yet, even as regenerated Christians, don't we still have in us the inclination to all evil? Did not Lord's Day 23 teach us that we are righteous in Christ even though we still feel in us that we are inclined to all evil. So the question is, how can this be that, although that's all true, nevertheless, we still feel in us that we must do good works. We feel that. Don't you feel that? Don't you have that in your heart? Don't you have in your soul the commitment to live a godly life? If you're a Christian, you have that. You delight in the law of God after your inward man. You are resolved to obey the law of God. You love the law of God. How can that be? Why must we still do good works? God says to us in his law, you must do good works. But we find in our hearts that we say the same thing that God says in his law. We say in our hearts, I must do good works. Why is that? Why do we say that? Why do we feel that? The answer of the catechism and the answer of Scripture is not because of anything that we have done. 
We were dead in sin, prone and inclined to all evil, but now we desire to do good works and we, we feel compelled to do good works. How, how can that be? It's not because we have, by our own efforts, climbed up out of the slime pit of our depravity by our own free will, by our own hard work. We who are in the cesspool of the human depraved race, we made ourselves different from everyone else. We pulled ourselves up and out of that pit so that now we are the ones who desire to do good works unlike everyone else. The Catechism says, no, that's not the answer. The answer is Christ. Christ is the answer. Christ not only redeems us, but also renews us. Christ is the reason we have that internal desire to do good works. The Catechism teaches us that Christ has not only redeemed us, but he also renews us. What did Christ do on the cross? When Christ died on the cross, what did he do? He did everything that was necessary for our salvation, for our full salvation. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He atoned for all of our sins. With his blood, he covered over our sins. He obtained for us the righteousness that we could not accomplish. That's what he did by shedding his blood on the cross. And now he sends his spirit into our hearts And the Spirit engrafts us into Christ so that we receive from Christ the gift of a living faith. And by believing in Christ, by embracing Christ, by trusting in Christ, we receive that free gift of righteousness. We receive from God the declaration, I don't condemn you. I forgive you. And I impute to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything for it. You cannot and you do not have to do anything to make yourself worthy of that righteousness. I give it to you freely. I grant it to you graciously. I give it to you by faith alone in Christ alone. Christ did that on the cross and he gives that to us now in our lives. But what else did he do on the cross? He not only covered our sins and earned righteousness for on the cross, but by doing that, he also earned for us the right not to sin. He obtained for us the right and the power to live a new and godly life. We don't have that right by nature. As sinners, we don't even deserve to do good works. We lost that. We lost that. We don't deserve it. But Christ gave his life on the cross to save us, not only from the guilt of our sins, but to save us from the pollution of our sins, from the bondage of sin, from the power of sin. He broke the power of Satan. And now what does he do? He renews us by his Holy Spirit. He begins by the work of regeneration. When he grafts us into himself as the living Savior, the life of Christ flows to us and we become alive. We are regenerated. We become new creatures. And even though we are still inclined to wickedness in our old nature, we have a new man and now we also have the ability to live unto God. 
But that's not all that Christ does. He regenerates us and he sanctifies us through his spirit. Notice the catechism says he renews us. Present tense. Not just he regenerated us. He didn't just break the power of sin in our life, but he sanctifies us. He renews us so that we actually begin to overcome sin and we actually begin to walk in all good works. The Catechism taught us the truth of justification in Lord's Day 23 and 24. Justification. Now the Catechism is teaching us the truth of sanctification. Sanctification, Lord's Day 32 and 33, and really all the Lord's Days that follow. Sanctification always follows justification. They are not to be confused. They are not the same. We are not justified because of our works or through our works. We are justified by faith alone without our works. But being justified, now Christ sanctifies us so that we do good works. And we love to do them. That's what the Apostle is teaching in this epistle. You know, we often think of Paul, that great theologian of justification. That's true. But remember also Paul, the great theologian of sanctification. That's what we read here. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. Verse 3. That ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Jesus died on the cross to cover all of your sexual sins. He shed his blood to blot out all of your sexual lusts and mine. He gives us the gift of faith. And by faith in Christ, God declares to us about all of those sexual, filthy sins that we've committed. I forgive all of them. I don't hold them against you. I don't impute them to you, but I impute Jesus' sexual faithfulness. I impute that to you for free. I view you in my eyes as perfectly righteous and pure. That's justification. A marvelous blessing. And then follows sanctification. And God declares to us, now go and sin no more. Don't commit those same sexual sins anymore. And when he calls us to that, he also works in us a beginning. He sets us free from the power of those sins. He sets us on the path of purity and sexual faithfulness, whether in single life or in married life. This is the will of God for your life, Paul says, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. God's sanctifying work is to deliver you from the power of the lust of concupiscence, the lust that holds so many people bondage, even Christians. Jesus died on the cross, and Jesus works in our lives to break that power so that it doesn't reign over us, and so that we begin to overcome those sins. 
Sanctification is the work of God delivering us from the power of sin and renewing us in the image of his Son so that we do good works. The fruit of sanctification is that we do good works. He renews us in the image of his Son. In Romans 8, verse 29, we read, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. God does not sanctify everybody. He sanctifies those whom he has predestinated in all eternity to be conformed to the image of his Son. He sanctifies those whom he justifies. He sanctifies those whom he has chosen, his elect. He sanctifies all of his elect. And that means that he works in us to be conformed to the image of his Son. We were originally in the image of God. We lost that image when we fell into sin. And salvation means that God not only justifies us, but he also restores his image so that we begin to look like him again. But it's even better than that. We begin to look like him as he is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. We begin to look like Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. God causes us more and more, having freed us from our guilt and our condemnation. He says, I don't condemn you. I love you. And now go and don't sin. And he makes us more and more to look like Christ. Adam and Eve were in the image of God. They looked like God, their creator. But God creates us in the image of Christ. We look like our Redeemer. Our Redeemer. Who selflessly laid down his life at 33 years of age to die on the cross so that we might live. He begins to work in us. He begins that work that we begin to walk in all good works of love. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, the apostle writes that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Before the world even existed, God ordained the good works that we would walk in, and he works in us so that we do them. The result of sanctification is that we do good works. But the result is, first of all, that we must do good works. And that's the most fundamental thing. You know, the Bible says that when God establishes his new covenant, he will write his law upon our hearts. That doesn't just mean that we will know what is right and wrong. But it means that in our hearts, God writes his law. That's regeneration. The law is written on our hearts. That's why we Christians have this internal compulsion to do good works. God says to us in his law in the Bible, like this morning, this is what you must do. That comes from outside. But now from inside... We say in our hearts to ourselves, you must do good works. We say that to ourselves. 
And the result of God's work in us is that we do walk in good works. Not perfect, but we make a beginning. And we don't take credit for those. When we walk in good works, we don't glory in the good works that we have done. We don't boast in what we have accomplished. As if the power came from ourselves. But we give thanks to God for his work of sanctification. And even then, when we give thanks to God for his work of sanctification, we don't do that like the Pharisee. The Pharisee who stood in the temple and said, I I thank thee, O Lord, that I am not like other men, that I don't walk in these sinful ways. That's That's a prayer of pride and arrogance, taking credit for the good works that one does. No. We give thanks because we know that we are no better than other men. We are those wretched sinners. And yet God has set us free. Let's return to the lead question of the catechism. Why must we still do good works? In the second place, the answer to that question is that we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings. That's what Christ does when he renews us. He gives unto us this internal desire to show gratitude to God. And that's the motivation for good works. Christ works in us by his spirit. That's the power. And what does he work in us? A sense of gratitude. Are you grateful to God for all that he has done for you? Am I? You know, the question of the catechism, in a way, is kind of a strange question to ask a Christian. Why must we still do good works? The Christian doesn't really ask that. Because he knows that he must, and he knows why. The catechism is asking this question to us, Because there has always been the danger of antinomianism in the church from the very earliest times. Antinomianism is that devilish lie and heresy that sometimes creeps into the church, which tries to deceive Christians to think that since I am redeemed without my works, I don't have to do good works. Since I am saved apart from my works, I don't have to strive in the Christian life. I don't have to strive to abound and to increase more and more. And so antinomian teachers begin to teach that. And it deceives the sheep. The truth of the matter is, if you are are grateful to God, then you know that you must do good works. You want to do good works, and you must, and you know why. Because God would have us to show gratitude to him. That's why. Gratitude is the motivation for doing good works. God has blessed us richly, and God wants us now to live the rest of our lives and even to all eternity. Not doing good works to try to merit something, but doing good works of gratitude to him. All that he has done for us. That's the motivation.
The motivation is never that we hope to gain something, to get something, to obtain something from God by doing these good works. That's never the motivation. Husbands, would your, life, would your wife be pleased with you if you came home from work one day with a beautiful bouquet of flowers? And you hand those flowers to your wife with a big smile on your face. But she knows, somehow she knows, that the reason that you bought those flowers was that you're trying to get her to do something for you. She knows that the reason that motivated you to buy those flowers was the hope of getting something in return. Would your wife be pleased at that motivation? And wives, if you bring a compliment to your husband, complimenting him, but your husband knows that the reason you are making that compliment to him is that you are hoping to get him to do something for you. Do you think that your husband is pleased with that compliment? Probably not. And there is a deed which can be done from one motivation or from another motivation. Same action, but in the one case, entirely spoiled because the motivation is to get something back versus the motivation of pure and true love. I bought these flowers just because I love you, and that's all. It's the only motivation. I'm giving you this compliment just because I love you, and that's the only motivation. In Luke 6, verse 35, the Lord Jesus teaches us that that's what true love means. And good works are works of love. Luke 6, verse 35, read that. Read that later today. Luke 6, verse 35. Don't do these works, Jesus says, in hope of gaining something in return, in the hope of getting something back. We do that all the time. All the time. And how disappointing it is to our spouse when we do good things out of selfish motives. But now let me tell you how powerful true love is. True love is so strong. In Song of Solomon it says that love is strong as death. Love is so strong, pure, true, unconditional love, that when your spouse does a good deed of love toward you, like buying you flowers or giving you a compliment, and you know He or she is motivated by selfish motives. You know that, and it hurts, and it's disappointing. Even then, you don't respond in kind, but you continue to be committed and resolved to showing unconditional love to your spouse. Because, you see, it just becomes a vicious circle otherwise. I do good things to you, so you will do good things to me, and vice versa. And if that's the way it is, it just goes round and round and round. And the the cycle is never broken. But the cycle is broken when the husband or the wife 
begins to learn how to do good unconditionally. Without any hope, any desire, or any expectation of getting anything in return. Nothing. When the husband or the wife begins to do good works like that, the cycle is broken. And I say that especially to the husbands. I'm a husband. You are husbands. The husbands are called to love their wives. We are called to take the lead in our marriages. The call always comes to husbands first. Husbands, love your wives unconditionally, in the same way that Christ loved you and gave himself for you. And if you say, but it's just so hard, then my answer is always going to be, look up to Christ. Think of what he did for you. Think of his unconditional love for you. He laid down his life for you. He loves you. He loves you, brother, so much. That's what you have to remember all the time. All the time. That's how you can love unconditionally. When you hold on to that unconditional love shown towards you. The whole epistle of 1 John is about that. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The apostle also commended the Thessalonians for that in this chapter. It's quite striking. In verse 9 he says, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. He is commending them for doing that very thing loving each other in the church, and even throughout all the province of Macedonia, they loved the brethren unconditionally. They were taught by God, obviously, not by man, not by themselves. God was teaching them how to love each other. But then notice what he says. I beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. I love that. Do you love that? The apostle says to us, He says, as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. I say that to you too this morning. But I beseech you, brothers, sisters, abound more and more. Why do we need to hear that? Because as long as we live in this life, we have that selfish nature that we carry around with us. We're always tempted to do things selfishly, conditionally, to get something back. So we need to be told, abound more and more. The motivation for doing good works is gratitude to God. Gratitude to God. Love for him who first loved us. Imagine a young person whose God-fearing parents are regulating his or her life. And they set a curfew for Friday night or Saturday night curfew. And they set boundaries in the dating relationship of their children. They set boundaries. They set rules. And they regulate the lives of their young people. 
while they're under their roof. Roof. And that young person doesn't like those rules. Bulks at those rules. And starts to speak disrespectfully to his mother. And starts to snub the rules of his father. Then what might you say to that young person? You might say to the young person who is dishonoring his parents, belittling, mocking, and snubbing the rules of the house, you might say to that person, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Aren't you thankful to your parents? That gets through. Aren't you thankful to your mother who carried you in her womb, who gave birth to you, who put the bottle in your mouth and fed you and changed your diapers and clothed you and raised you and brought you to the doctor and got you your immunizations and cared for you when you were sick and year after year after year after year did everything for you, cleaned your clothes, cleaned your room, all of the things that she does for you? Have you thought about that lately? And your father, how he goes to work every day. Why does he go to work every day? It's for you. It's because he loves you. He wants to care for you. And you say that, and you realize, I must be thankful to my parents. A person might even go so far as to say to that young person, is this how you repay your parents? But the thing about that statement is, Parents don't want repayment. Parents never ask for repayment. It's all for free. Parents only want gratitude. And gratitude takes the form of love. It takes the form of obedience. It takes the form of faithfulness. It takes the form of respect. That's gratitude. Well, if that's true in our families, and it is, how much more is that true of our relationship to God? I'm not picking on the young people today. We're all, we're all like that. We're all the children of our God. And we all disrespect him and snub his laws. Why do we do that? We do that when we are not living out of gratitude. Gratitude is the motivation for living in all good works. When we're living sinfully and selfishly, then we need to be told again what God has done for us. Are you going to live like that? When God, with his great love wherewith he loved you, gave his only begotten Son his most precious and beloved son, he gave him and he gave his life and shed his blood on the cross and suffered the wrath of God that you deserved to rescue you, to save you, to adopt you. We were poor orphans who would perish in the dark, alone and forsaken and God had mercy upon us 
and took us up into his arms and embraced us in the warm and eternal embrace, embrace with his immense divine arms. He gathered us up into his covenant family and took us in and gave us all that we have. And he says to us, I promise, I promise you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. My love is true. My love is eternal. You can count on that. The motivation then becomes gratitude. There's no gratitude where there's no knowledge of the gospel. If we don't preach the gospel, if we don't hear the gospel, if we don't see what sinners we are and how gracious God is, we'll never be grateful. But Christ renews us by his spirit that we may show gratitude to God. Are you grateful? Catechism says that those who continue in their wicked and ungrateful lives and are not converted to God cannot be saved. Cannot they be saved? By no means. Because the scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Ephesians, Ephesians 5, verse 5. The same apostle of justification says, people who continue in a wicked and ungrateful life and they are not converted to God cannot be saved. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what does that mean? Are you an adulterer? Are you a thief? Are you a covetous man? Are you a drunkard? Are you a slanderer? Are you a robber? And if you continue in such sins, you will not go into heaven, into the kingdom of God. You will perish in hell. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that anyone who has committed any of these sins will perish. We've all committed these sins. And we all do commit these sins. But it's saying that someone who continues in a wicked and ungrateful life, impenitently in those sins, cannot be saved. Notice that. He cannot be saved. The meaning is not that God cannot save him. God can save anyone. God saves the worst and the most wicked of sinners. God can save them. But when the catechism says they cannot be saved, the meaning is God will not save them. And if God will not, then they cannot be saved. But we could also explain it. Someone who continues in a wicked and ungrateful lives has not been saved. Because if they had been saved then they wouldn't continue in sin, but they would walk in repentance and strive and fight against their sins because that's the fruits of salvation. God converts his people so that they hate and flee from their sins in gratitude. Why must we still do good works? 
because Christ works in us, because we must show our gratitude. And here's another consideration that the Catechism gives to us, that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. Now, if everything that has been said is true, at least in the main lines, then the Catechism cannot here be teaching us that one of the motivations of doing good works is in order to gain the blessing of assurance. Then we're right back to being motivated to do good works by the hope or the desire or the expectation of getting something in return. Honestly, have you as a Christian ever done a good work out of the motivation of gaining greater assurance or any other blessing of salvation from God? That's not what motivates us. What motivates us is all that God has already done for us and all that he promises to do for us. Gratitude. We don't think to ourselves, I want more assurance, so I'm going to do more works. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be busier. I'm going to strive more. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that and this and that because I'm hoping that if I do all these things, because of that or through that, somehow I will reach and attain to a higher level of spirituality and grace and assurance? No. That's not what the Catechism is teaching. It can't be. First of all, we have to understand that the Catechism is talking here about the assurance of our faith, not the assurance of our justification, not the assurance of our salvation. There's a very important difference. Go back to Lord's Day 7. Go back to Lord's Day 23. You're going to see there that we are assured of our justification by faith alone. That assurance is not something that we earn. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. God gives it to us freely by faith. By faith that clings to Christ. That's so important Because the devil may come to you and tempt you to doubt that a filthy, wretched sinner like you could possibly be saved. He'll do that. He'll do that to me. He'll tempt you. You? No, no, no. You're way too wicked. There's no way that you could be saved. And then how can we have assurance that we are saved? How can we have assurance that our sins are forgiven and we are righteous? Not by doing more works, but by faith. Faith that looks to Christ and clings to Christ. And that faith can say to the devil, you can squawk all you want, but I know my Jesus died for me. He's my righteousness. Catechism is not talking here about the assurance of our salvation or the assurance of our justification. If you know that you're going to die today, how can you be sure that you're going to heaven? Are you going to look back at the life of good works that you lived and say, I'm pretty sure. I lived a good enough life. I'm pretty sure that I'll make it there. 
if I know that I'm going to die today, I'm just going to cling to Christ. The Catechism is talking about the assurance of our faith. You see, we rebuff that temptation of the devil by faith in Christ. But now the devil comes back and says, oh, really? So it's all about faith, is it? Well, how do you know that you have faith? How do you know that you have true faith? Don't you know that the devils also have faith? Don't you know that wicked people also have a kind of faith? How do you know that you have faith? That can be a very grievous temptation. That temptation can seize us in the darkness of the night. How can I be sure? And sometimes we may express that that doubt to our wife or our husband or to a a close friend. I'm I'm not sure. Do I have a true faith? How can I be sure? Or to the pastor. And what does the pastor or the friend or the spouse say to that doubting Christian? Well, as I heard it once, the pastor might say to that person, well, if you're not sure if you have true faith, then why are you coming to church? Then why do you sing? Then why do you worship God? And why do you love your children? Why do you pray? Just forget all that. If you're not sure, just go out and live a worldly life, wicked life. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. And the Christian will respond to that, well, no. No, I can't do that. Assurance of our faith is given to us by God by observing with a holy joy the fruits of that faith in our lives. That's in the Canons of Dort. By observing in our lives the fruits of a living faith. Notice the difference. I'm not doing these good works out of the motivation that in the future I will gain greater assurance that I have a true faith. But I'm doing these good works out of gratitude and thankfulness and love for God, for all that he has done for me. And now when I'm tempted in the moment of temptation, I observe the life that I'm living. I observe the good works that God has given me to do. And recognizing that faith without works is dead, knowing that a living faith produces fruits, I see those fruits, and I'm able to trace the origin back to faith, and I'm able to be sure I have a true faith. But notice, the works that we do, even the good works that we do, are not perfect. What is it? What is the good work that God uses to make us sure that we have a true faith? Especially it is the works of the heart. Because we can always see imperfections in our good works, but we go back to the heart and we ask ourselves, do I love God? Do I love Christ? 
Am I resolved to live a godly life? Then I must be a believer. The proof is there. So it's not something that we do to try to earn that assurance, but God gives it to us in the way of a godly life. He doesn't give that assurance in the way of a wicked life. But in the way of a godly life. Finally, the Catechism teaches us that we must do good works so that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Peter taught that in his epistles, 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Paul teaches that in his epistles. Even here in verse 12, we are to walk honestly toward them that are without, outside the church. There we see, again, that good works are always They're never about us. Good works are never done out of the motivation that is selfish, seeking something for myself. Good works are always done in the service to God and for others, that others may be gained to Christ. Not that we gain them to Christ, but God will use us to draw them to the church in two ways. First of all, through our godly lifestyle in our marriages, in our families, in our homes, in the workplace, the way you live. How do you live? How do you talk? Do you talk about the Lord? Do you pray before you eat? Do you talk about your church? Do you love your wife and your children? And does that show itself in the neighborhood, in the congregation, by our godly lifestyle? Others may see that. This has happened thousands of times through history, that ungodly people have seen Christians in the way that they live, and they've been pricked in their hearts, or they've just become curious. They want to find out more about this, so they come. But in the second place, the godly conversation includes our witness Sometimes we can think that as long as we are not sinning in public, that's a witness. As long as we're not sinning. But is it really a witness to not do something? Yes, that's part of it. But I would venture to say that's not even the most important part. The witness that we give is not by what we don't do, primarily, but by what we do. Not by the things we don't say, but by the things we say. Do we talk about the Lord with our neighbors? Good works are works of love for God and the neighbor. Do you love your neighbor? Do I? If I love my neighbor, then I care about his eternal destiny, don't I? I care about his eternal destiny. I might care about his earthly life, 
his earthly happiness, his earthly welfare, that's good. That's important too. Do I care about his eternal destiny? That is love. And the Thessalonians were exemplary in that regard. You go back to chapter 1 and the apostle says, I'm astounded. When I preached the word of God to you, I didn't preach it in word only, but in power. And this is the evidence that everywhere you go, when you go to work, when you go to play, when you walk around in your neighborhoods and communities, when you go down to the harbor, when you get on the ship, when you are working out in the field with, with pagan people, you sound forth the word everywhere you go. You echo the word that is preached. You echo it. That echo is not the preaching of the gospel. Your witness is not preaching. You're not preachers. We're not, you're not all called to be preachers, but echoes. And when that echo of the gospel is heard, see, this is where the, the sound begins in the church, the preaching. That's the original sound. And then all God's people hearing that sound, they go out into the world and they echo it. Echo, 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 echo. And people hear that echo and it draws them back to the original sound. That's how witnessing works. People are drawn to the preaching of the gospel because it pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. That's why it's necessary for Christians to do good works. So let's conclude with the plea of the apostle. In the chapter that we read, I beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Pray that thou would bind it to our hearts. Thank thee for Jesus Christ and that free salvation. We pray that thou would work in us that we might abound more and more, that we might not become complacent, that we might not become satisfied, but that we might desire to grow and to increase in love and good works. And grant that we as brothers and sisters in the Lord here in the church might provoke one another to good works, encourage each other. We pray that in this way, not our name, but thy name might be praised.